I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to Lama Surya Das's Awakening Now podcast. We are very pleased to share with you Lama's unique illumination of the awakened awareness teachings. If you are interested in supporting Lama Surya Das's podcast, please go to beherenownetwork.com/suryadas. Gate gate para gate para sum gate bodhiswa gate gate para gate para sum gate bodhiswa gate gate para gate Parasangate bodhiswaha gate gate paragate sangate bodhiswaha gate beyond gate beyond par beyond the beyond beyond mind and concepts sangate awakening swaha far out now Gate para gate para sam gate bodhiswa gate gate para gate para sam gate bodhiswa gate gate para gate para sam gate bodhiswa Gate gate para gate para sangate bodhiswaha gate gate para gate para sangate bodhiswaha gate gate para gate Parasam gate bodhiswaha gate gate paragate 
Parasam gate bode swaha gate gate para gate parasam gate bode swaha gate gate para gate parasam gate bode swaha Homage to Prajnaparamita, Transcendental Wisdom, Discriminating Awareness, Imminent Gnosis. May all realize it and be benefited by it. And may we all together complete the spiritual journey. We've been chanting the Gate Mantra, the Wisdom Mantra, the Prajnaparamita Wisdom Mantra, which is the heart of the Heart Sutra, the Heart Scripture of Wisdom, according to Mahayana Buddhism. It's said wherever that this is chanted, and it's chanted all around the globe in different practice centers, that the practitioners will flourish together and progress, that the land will be blessed and all the creatures will be blessed that the beings seen and unseen will be blessed and inspired and edified and awakened and protected. And it's a beautiful, meritorious practice and things to do. I think I find a lot of energy in chanting practice. If it's for you, consider taking it up. If not, let it be. There are other things to do, other yogas. Like in yoga, the eight-limbed yoga, not just physical yoga, also mantra yoga, energy yoga, devotional yoga, seva or service, good karma yoga, and so forth. So many portals to the one or approaches to God or in Buddhist terms, lanes on the path. So many different lanes on the path on the great highway of awakening. If we look at it as a metaphor for Awakening, though, this great highway, it has many lanes. It's not just a razor's edge down the middle that we have to struggle and worry anxiously about getting perfectly and further reinforce our inner tyrant or our perfectionist tendencies that would, that's contraindicated. There are many lanes, different horses for, different courses for different horses, as the British tell me. But Let's just try to avoid the extremes, the ditches on either side of this highway of awakening. Ditches, like on one side, materialism and believing only in that which we can see or measure, quote, prove scientifically. Or on the other hand, nihilism, falling into the ditch, the pit of nihilism, nothing matters, etc. Those are two extremes that could be well avoided. <coughs> Chanting is a beautiful practice. Chanting meditation. 
Shab, the sacred sound yoga, and so forth. It's a good way to rivet the mindfulness if you like it. Like if you listen to music, if you're transported by music, or other arts, fine arts, etc. It's a good natural meditation because it rivets the attention. Since our subject today is mindfulness and the different kinds of mindfulness as to help us practice and tailor our practice as we go through different stages and ups and downs and different phases on the path of awakefulness. Sometimes breathing exercises can help lift us up and clarify and blow the cobwebs away and clarify our mind and they're good for concentration and other things such as healing, radiating love and kindness and compassion as we did with Omani Pebiho mantra earlier this morning and so on or purification mantras. So this is called the Prajnaparamrita Wisdom Mantra. You can read the sutra if you like, the Heart Sutra. It's a one-page poem and, and, um, embodying or holding the entire hundred verses of Prajnaparamrita Wisdom Scripture of Mahayana Buddhism. The Heart Sutra of Perfect Wisdom, the Distilled Essence Heart Sutra of Perfect Wisdom. And wisdom is a very important subject today. I think it's an endangered natural resource on this planet, this timeless wisdom, universal wisdom, something that we ignore and overlook at our peril. Anyway, Buddhism is known as a wisdom tradition more than a faith. It's one of the world's great religions, but it doesn't depend on a god or an external creator being. So the development of wisdom and compassion could be said to be the essence of it all, as the Dalai Lama has often said. I don't want to go into the subject today of what is wisdom, but if you're familiar with the Eightfold Path or the three trainings that comprise the Eightfold Path of Buddhism, Shila, Samadhi, and Prajna, ethical self-discipline, Shila, Samadhi, concentration, mindfulness, awareness, Samadhi, and third, Prajna or Panya, wisdom, or wisdom and love, let's say, selflessness, which is love, wisdom, as the Eightfold Path, the first two steps on the Eightfold Path, wise view, or seeing things as they are, and wise understanding or wise intentions, seeing how it works, causation, intention, and so forth, unselfishness. These comprise the wisdom section of the three higher trainings of Shila, Samadhi, and Prajna, ethics, meditation, and wisdom. You can read a lot about this, so I'm not going to go into all this. But the reason I bring it up is I think it's important as we're talking and studying about mindfulness today, mindfulness and awareness and so forth, that we don't just reductionistically or materialistically let mindfulness in our time be reduced to just mere mental floss without the liberating and edifying, heart-opening and mind-wisening qualities that mindfulness traditionally encompasses and very potently brings about. Just like I hope we don't let yoga in our time become just mere calisthenics to look better, or even for physical health alone, good as that is, and great as it is as a Dharma gate, but also what about mental health, emotional health, societal health, relational health, and so forth. So the eight limbs yoga, not just one yoga limb, are very important. Similarly with mindfulness, not just as mental floss, but including its wisdom-developing, character-enhancing, heart-opening 
unselfishness-producing ways. Very important. So mindfulness could be defined as the opposite of mindlessness, as I said. It has a few aspects that are related to this wisdom side, so that we shouldn't simplistically fall into the belief that it's just being here now or being or mere presence of mind, although that's a lot for us distractaholics and thinkaholics, etc., in our time, not to mention dozaholics. You know, even among us meditators who are dedicated to awakefulness and awakening. Anybody know this one? <laughs> Fifteen more minutes. <laughs> or the worst one. <laughs> You don't want to fall into the burning bush. I mean the candle and be totally consumed. That would not do. So awakefulness is the essence, of course, and awareness. And mindfulness often has a connotation of efforted or generated. That's why I was talking about the six kinds of mindfulness, to go on to stable, which becomes more natural and effortless, and so forth. So from effort to effortless, we have a saying in Tibetan, through the fabricated, reaching the natural. Through the fabricated. So making some efforts to recondition and decondition so we can reach the natural, the unconditioned, the deconditioned. Not just saying, oh, that's just supportive practices or those are just rituals or who needs that. As some, uh, I don't want to pick on anybody, but um, you know, some, let's say, Non-dualists today, I feel, are a little dualistic about non-dualism. <laughs> like, you shouldn't do any practice because any practice is dualistic and suggests that you're trying to get somewhere. Some of them, you know, say they're already enlightened, so that's a tough one to get out of. You know, that's what I call the school of premature immaculation. <laughs> <laughs> so... We- We make efforts, but we also swooping down from above with the view, being there while getting there, not waiting to get there, that every step of the way is the great way. Not forgetting that, not losing sight of the forest because we're in the trees. Having the eagle's eye view of the city while we're lost in the concrete canyons looking, you know, following the grid. Still having that map in our mind, like at the bus stop with the big blown up map. You are here. You know, and here's the park and here's the ocean and so on. The eagle's eye view while you're negotiating each turn and twist. So Padmasambhava, the founder of Tibetan Buddhism, the Dzogchen master who came from India in the 8th century, said, my view may be as high as the sky, emptiness, vastness, infinite voidness, but my my action regarding cause and effect is as finely ground as barley flour, meticulous. Big perspective, and yet knowing everything counts, every thought, every word, every deed, every intention, every action has results, has ripples, karma, cause and effect. So bringing meticulous awareness and mindfulness to everything, very carefully. As Chang Su says, like a band of travelers 
carefully inching across a half-frozen stream in the spring. That's a good image of mindfulness. Not just sitting and trying to do nothing or not think. Like a band of travelers inching across a half-frozen stream in spring, testing each step. Anybody here do walking meditation? Here, either in the Vipassana tradition or Kinin in Japanese tradition, you know, step by step, breath by breath, lifting, placing, putting, breaking it down meticulously slowly so then you can carry your mindfulness off the cushion and into movement and then a little faster so you can bring it into daily life so you don't have to walk very slowly through your days. You're allowed to run to catch the bus, you know, (laughs) but try not to break your hip while you're doing it or stub your toe. So awareness, even while hurrying, is very possible. At any speed, we can be centered and attentive. So like a band of of travelers inching across a frozen stream in spring, that's mindfulness in action. Buddha gave the example of um, women. Of course, it was women in India. Don't get upset. He was the great uh, first great educator and liberator of women, I think, in mass in history. He, women carrying giant jugs of water back from the village well while holding the babies in their arms. That careful and that motivated. Remember about natural attention being the first kind of mindfulness? Do you want the baby to get hurt? Do you want the jug to drop, not only lose the water that you need in the, in the, in the, in the hut, but break the jug? How many jugs do you think that they have in, in that hut? That's a real family treasure, that one jug. So totally invested in 100% complete attention of balancing act. The jug on the head, carrying the baby, bringing the water back to the house. That attentive. What word do we use for it? That's what mindful means, according to Lord Buddha. A combination of interest, being incredibly interested and invested in this, this family, this group activity. Not frivolous, not risky, totally attending to it. That's mindfulness, the opposite of mindlessness. What happens with a moment of mindfulness there? Big problem. Lose the water, lose the jug, maybe lose the baby. Or at least have to do another well run, which is not easy. Some of those people walked for miles every morning. So very motivated, interest as well as very attentive, very caring, very attentive. Not just watching their breath. That's panoramic mindfulness, you see. being It's like driving, not just looking forward, but being aware 360 degrees and outer and inner in order to keep the family on the road and safe and everybody else. So that's another good image that I believe we could carry into our life. Of course, if we talk about feeding the family, protecting the child, not losing our main possession. It's kind of a character sure we're exaggerating. So the question becomes, but what about in daily life we do so many things? We drive, I don't know, maybe some of you commute for an hour or two to you know, go a couple miles on Route 101 in the morning. <laughs> How do we stay that present and enlivened and awakeful in the humdrum activities and hours of life? Of course, if we're attentive enough, there's no such thing as boredom or humdrum. I don't know. Has anybody ever taken any drugs? 
that enhances your perception so much that you can just look at one part of the carpet all day? <laughs> Anybody know what I'm talking about? Boomers? Awareness is like that. Awareness is like that. At lunch, somebody asked me if we were going to talk about bliss and ecstasy this afternoon. I said, I didn't bring any. Did you? <laughs> but awareness is bliss. Fullness, oneness, wholeness, getting out of your way. There is bliss and joy and delight in it. It's not a chemical high. I mean, maybe it involves things that I didn't, we didn't study when I was in you know, school, like in the, before science was invented, like dopamine and neuroplasticity and all that stuff. But spiritually, we don't want to keep taking chemicals and going up and then coming down and then try to go up again. We want to live there, not just visit it in heaven, in wholeness, in oneness, in the divine, however you look at it, in nirvana. Usher in the kingdom of heaven, friends. We're the ushers. Let's not wait till after we die and hope we get there. So awareness is the higher power in Buddhism, the active component. Mindfulness is like its tools, the different kinds of mindfulness, but it's all about awareness, and awareness with a capital A, not just I am aware of it, dualistic awareness. Awareness, the bigger awareness beyond subject, object, and interaction, the three wheels of karmic creation. Of, through dualism. People call it oneness. Buddhists don't like the word oneness, but it's beyond ideas like oneness or nonness. It's a totality. It's like, um, I don't know, the ultimate lovemaking, cosmic orgasm, divine love. What word can encompass it? And yet we experience it. And some part of our life, I'm sure everybody in this room knows what I'm talking about, has experienced it some time. Maybe it's through childbirth. Maybe it's through a spiritual epiphany. Maybe it's through love. I don't know. Maybe it's through grace. All of a sudden, for no good reason, you just know you're the right person in the right place at the right time. That's what awareness can bring us home to in ourselves. That's the big mindfulness, not trying to watch our breath. We're not breath watchers or worshipers, by the way. And we're not statue worshippers, by the way. The Buddhist statue is supposed to be a mirror to see our best selves. Mirror. We don't have to become mirror collectors. This archetype is a doorway to something infinite. Let's not collect doorways and get stuck in the doorway. So my first mindfulness lesson was from my grandma, Ann Zakharoff. Maybe some of you knew her. From Brooklyn. Who's from Brooklyn? Come on, shout out. Thank you. When I was about five or six, and I was really a troublemaker, no good Nick. That's the kind of Yiddish I knew, only those kind of words. She said, Jeffrey, count to ten before you hit back. That was great. That was better than somebody, some authority saying, don't get mad, don't hit back. She said, count to 10 before you hit back, Jeffrey. I know you're wondering who Jeffrey is. Me, me. <laughs> count to 10 before you hit back. And I said, Grandma, how can I wait that long? She said, you try. So, of course, I couldn't count to 10, but at least it made me think twice. 
before I hit kicked and bit back. <clears throat> who has time? Who who has patience to count to ten? But you know, think twice before you act. That's a well-known maxim, a mind training slogan, as it were. But how? Most of us are like the knee joint. You tap it and it reacts. Knee jerk reaction, right? Blind reaction. Somebody cuts us off in traffic. We ram them with our Humvee. <laughs> Not the woman over there. With our Prius. <laughs> Green ramming. Now, there's a big difference between reacting and responding. Mindful awareness gives us some room to count to ten. You don't even have to count to think before you react, to choose how, when, and if to respond, not just blindly react in our habitual unfulfilling pattern and dig the rut deeper of the same unfulfilling pattern, probably unwholesome, unhelpful, harmful pattern. Vipassana teacher, mother yoga teacher in the East Coast, Tara Brock, who wrote the wonderful book Radical Acceptance, which I recommend. She called it the sacred pause. Create a sacred pause between stimulus and response. You know, there's a million mind moments in one second. As Buddha said, with his machines and and technology, he estimated it at some great number, like 6,400,000 mind moments. He called them kalapas in a second. Interestingly, science recently has, has kind of found out that that's more or less true. I mean, for me, a skeptical motor mind from New York, I was quite shocked. And surprised. I mean, I like what Buddha says, but I don't take it all totally literally. Anyway, there's a lot of mind moments in one second for us to catch ourselves before we get caught. Mindfulness helps us catch ourselves. Remember? Remember, recollect, collect ourselves. Catch ourselves before we get caught and entangled. It takes two to tangle. In Tibetan, there's a pithy instruction. It says, it's not outer objects which entangle us, Naropa. It's inner clinging and fixation which entangles us. That's where we can do the work of freedom. It's inner clinging and fixation, attachment, illusion, which entangles us, not outer objects. It's like Velcro. No matter how many rings there are trying to hook us, unless we provide the ring, unless we bite the bait, we don't get hooked. So use the Velcro side of your mind. Also, let things come and go. You don't have to push them away. They will go. Everything's impermanent. We can use that, not the flypaper sticky side that we've cultivated so much to learn and remember everything in this over-information age, in our upbringing, in our schooling of the left side, the, the, right, the left side of the brain, the conceptual, rational brain. We can access the right side, the gestalt, intuitive, all at once, holistic, so-called feminine wisdom side of the brain. And use both, the yin and the yang, to embrace as well as to go forward or build up or penetrate and be more permeable as well as more together. So we can create this sacred pause. So when somebody says something, we have a few mind moments of mindfulness to think before we respond. I call this mindful anger management. There's a secret of mindful anger management. 
not just retaliating, kind, shiring back. We can feel the anger. We don't have to suppress it like that guy over there does. <laughs> Forget him. Not that we would judge, but... <laughs> Anger is just an energy, and you can experience, feel it in your body. It hasn't yet devolved into action, into harm, violence, etc. Desire or lust is just an energy. It hasn't yet devolved into, you know, grabbing and whatever else goes after that. So, mindfulness will help you all very much, I'm sure. Like when you're on the elevator. Um, I don't know if tomorrow's a holiday here. Is tomorrow President's Day or something? Anyway, on Tuesday, when you leave the beautiful, pure land here of the rock, Spirit Rock, and you Marin, the God's Realm of Marin County, and you go downtown and you wait, and you're in the elevator of your, I, I don't know your your um, high tech, uh, you know, business place, and you're in the elevator, and when somebody steps on your foot, mindfulness will help you look and see if it's your boss or your employee before you decide whether to elbow them or not. <laughs> and in many other cases, too. That's freedom and autonomy, not just teenage independence, but autonomy within conditions, not just freedom from conditions. You with me? Autonomy within conditions. Because it's not what happens to us, but what we make of it that makes all the difference. That's the secret of spiritual mastery, of self-mastery. It's not out of things, but how we relate to it that makes all the difference, that determines our karma, our character, our destiny, and so our experience and so forth. As they say, it's not the hand you're dealt, but how you play it that determines the outcome of the game. For you gamblers out there. So that was my first lesson in mindfulness from Grandma. who was born in the old country, who, you know, Buddhism, Shmoodism. She didn't know from Buddhism, but she knew a, two, a thing or two about life, and she was willing to, like, mentor me in it, too, take the risk by passing on some elderly wisdom. And I hope that we are doing the same now as we go forward in life. Not just being consumers, but producers, passing it on to the next generations of whatever age. I mean, look around the room. None of us is getting any younger That's a Buddhist truth. (laughs) More like the graying Buddhas of America. So mindfulness is, some call the panacea. I don't know, my my, um, Dzogchen master, Dijimimche, used to say, he was more told about awareness, but uh, he would say, awareness is like blue jeans. It's good for every occasion. You can wear it to a wedding. You can wear it to work in the garden. You can ride horses with it. You know, there's designer mindfulness, and then there's regular, like Lee's, overall over-mindfulness. <laughs> if you get my meaning. It's not that precious like orchids that can only live in a hothouse, in a greenhouse. It's not even like grass that can grow just anywhere. It's like weeds. It's like clover and weeds that can grow anywhere. And we do our part in it, of course. It doesn't just happen by itself. Again, generated, cultivated, stabilizing, developing, and so forth. So how do we carry this on in daily life is really the big challenge. 
life can be very distracting. And also, we love to blame other things and other people. Like um, people these days love to blame the social media. How can I concentrate? How can I meditate? We're all so distracted. The social media. It used to just be the media. (laughs) Now it's the social media haunting us, interrupting us, that never stops. Of course, we never turn it off. We buy it, we fix it, we keep it going, and we never turn it off. We seem implicated in this conspiracy also. Remember, it takes two to tangle. Well, we don't have time today. There's much less time than there used to be. Anybody have that illusion going on in their heads? I mean, where did all the time go? Not to mention we have twice as long um, terms of life now, life expectancy. Yet we have less time. And we have all these labor-saving devices, microwaves and jet planes and instant everything, instant coffee and instant everything. But we have less time, even with all these labor-saving, leisure-producing devices. What's up with that? (laughs) Whose fault is that? I'm sure that life is long enough for those who know how to live. And that comes back to wisdom and awakening and enlightenment. Not just mental flossing a little in the morning so that you can almost be sane enough to bear the job that you don't like and the people that you blame for your unhappiness all day. There's, I wrote a whole book about this Buddha standard time, about living in the now, how it's not time we lack, but focus, priorities, and awareness. Time is so relative anyway, so plastic. If we're totally mindful beyond subject-object and interaction, as I was saying, it's a kind of oneness or oneness or non-dualism. We talk in Tibetan non-conceptual awareness, not just thinking or not cultivating mindfulness, but pure presence, as we call it, but pure presence, not aware of breathing, aware of something pure presence, then that's like the ultimate therapy, being totally now. There's no past in the now. There's no future in the now. That's like the ultimate therapy. There's just now, now, now. Not the conventional changing times, but just divine time. The fourth time, as we call it in the Dzogchen tradition, the holy now. Now, now, now. The unconditioned. So awareness is a portal to that, non-dual awareness or dharmakai mindfulness. I recommend it to you. I have a lot of material here. I'm glad to talk about it. We'll get to it. I also want to have some Q&A. I'd like to include our virtual friends. Usually I, I talk about the invisible array, which is all the lineage masters and those who have gone before us. But also we have now our virtual friends. You know, it's like we used to, when we were little, we had invisible friends. <laughs> Some of us still do. <laughs> and Spirit Rock being such a pioneering and excellent Buddhist center, meditation center, and community is beaming and streaming this online. So we have a few questions here from our virtual friends which i just like to address just for sangha purposes and just give the idea that we can communicate in widening circles with this world and also inviting and welcoming people in. So somebody says, oh, here's one about anger. Anger and irritation is one common emotion 
Uh, Rob says, I mean, you all know Rob. He's probably a girl, but he's called Rob here on the internet. <laughs> Anger and irritation is one common emotion that takes us away from being mindful, he says. Can you share one or two of your favorite tools for dealing with this? So, Rob, um, I was just talking about mindful anger management. So a tool, I gave more abstract examples, is like when you feel the anger to feel something in your body, which kind of um, come into the present moment rather than blaming the other that's making you angry because nobody can really make us angry if we don't have these seeds of anger inside, as Buddha said. That if you throw embers on a can on a lake of gasoline, if your heart's like a lake of kerosene or gasoline, Buddha said, it will explode with anger. But if just like peaceful water inside from doing your homework on yourself, the, the ember, the match, the flame will just and be put out. So take a breath, take a break, count to ten, like Granny said, count to two. That would help. Take a breath. That's a good Buddhist way to do it. And remember that it's not others that make us angry, but we are reacting angrily. We could react compassionately at the bad karma they're making or what they're doing that's not so skillful. It won't make them happy and popular in the long run either. So mindful anger management is good. Take a breath, take a break, feel something in your body to defuse the outward-going aggression that anger can often bring up. Bring it back here in your body, in your stomach, or in your tension places, wherever you get tense. And another thing is very important, as we discussed earlier today, about being open to allowing the anger to arise, not squashing it, suppressing it, repressing it, cradling it with love, as Venerable Thich Nhat Hanh says, like a tantruming child. We don't love the tantrum, but we love the child, and that's more important. So we hold it, we hang with it. So accepting and loving the dark side of ourselves, the the difficult emotions, whatever, is very important practice. Not rejecting it, suppressing it, repressing it. It doesn't mean we have to indulge it either. We can feel it and let it go, or choose how, when, and if to respond. If there's something wrong, then maybe we need to react and respond. So here's an interesting one. I won't belabor this point. Vida says, does Buddha awaken in someone who is not practicing ahimsa? So we have two words there, foreign words, Buddha and ahimsa, nonviolence. Anybody like to take that on? Any of you Dharma teachers? Does Buddha awaken? I mean, this is the way the question is posed. Does Buddha awaken in someone who is not practicing ahimsa? Any comments? Anybody? The wisdom of the group? No? No. Joe says no. Anybody else? Yes, over there. She says yes. It's good, it's good that you, I can see you're sitting on opposite sides of the aisle. Very typical. <laughs> Yes. Well, it's already there. Uh, oh, see, there's other nuances here. We, it's already there. Do I hear an and or a but? No. Nope, good. You're saying Buddha does not awaken. It's already there. Even though they're not practicing nonviolence, ahimsa. 
What do you think? Buddha is awakefulness. Buddha is awakefulness. That's what she's saying. Yeah. Right. Good. But if somebody's not practicing nonviolence, then what? Is it a sleeping Buddha? They're not practicing nonviolence. Okay. It's hard to argue with that. That's what it says. <laughs> it is what it is, as, they, as Buddha said. <laughs> That's the kind of the final word, the last noble truth. It is what it is. Oh, thank you for that information. <laughs> Love it. Yes, sir. If it awakens, perhaps they will become more nonviolent. If it awakens, perhaps they will become nonviolent. Yes, that's the general spiritual thinking, of course. The more awake, then the less foolish, stupid, harmful, dualist, you know, exploitative, whatever. That's the general thinking. Good. Anybody else? So you see, it's interesting, actually. These are rich questions, and it's rarely yet just yes or no. You know, like, don't get angry. <laughs> As my guru said, I mean, I'm trying. It's hard. So any questions before we have our afternoon break? I, really, I could, I could go on all afternoon. Anybody? I like the Q&A question period, and it's a very much important part of American Western Buddhism. We don't have it that much in the East, and it's very good for us. Otherwise, I could just rabbit on all afternoon. I have a lot of material. We could talk, talk, and talk. Yes, over here. Um, so I guess my question is ultimately about ego. Um, Go slow. Okay. How do you avoid... Um, thinking of yourself um, by looking at the image presented about you. And I was thinking about this when I was in the bookstore looking at all your books, and which are you know terrific. But it right. is a way of presenting you that someone's presenting, ultimately to help sell books. And how do you avoid thinking of yourself in that way? And I'm asking because that you're that... that that, that all-knowing that image. image, I guess. Yeah, it doesn't say all-knowing there, but I well, know what you're saying. Right, like the introduction I got here. Right. Right. Like, right. how do you not buy your own publicity? Yeah, and I'm asking yeah. because... That's something we talk about, you know, me and my therapist. I mean, me and my Dharma, <laughs> my Dharma colleague. I mean, you know, I'm not crazy. Me and my Dharma colleagues. <laughs> yeah, we do. I'm asking because I... You I'm also a, have a public profile? No, I, I don't have a public profile, but I am a leader in terms of what yes, I do for a it's living. It's a big leadership question. And right. so people come to me because I yeah. have that leader role. Right. And then sometimes I find myself thinking, well, because I'm the, I'm the lead physician, is what I am, then therefore, yeah, which is very... but a lead physician very, is like nothing. How could you be proud I, of yeah. that? I'm a llama. <laughs> <laughs> You're just the lead physician right, of, I don't know what, Kaiser Permanente. <laughs> How many times okay, did you go to medical I, school? <laughs> no. So I, I guess I'm cured not now. Buying my own PR, not right. buying one's own PR, right. but you know, knowing who you are, which is the inner work, of course. So um, you know, people might introduce you as the Nobel Prize winning best and most beautiful, wonderful, greatest, accomplished, you know, and even better than Nobel Prize winner, you know, like saving the children with vaccines and, and I don't know what. 
but you know you know who you are so like that's part of the role those are accomplishments but you know you still put on your pants one leg at a time as they say and uh you still have a probably a mate who nags you about something that you don't do right i don't know so that's good that keeps you honest and keeps you on the ground and also that's your life the other thing is like work role in the best sense it's your true vocation but it's still not who we really are which you know is a big question of life and before you were a lead physician you were a child you were a daughter you were a student you weren't a doc and after you get older i don't know maybe you'll retire maybe you'll die then what so lead physician is only one role you're also an american you're a woman you're a wife you're a granddaughter you're a grandmother you're this you're that you're the other thing so that's a big part of it and then of course to put it more bluntly you have to you have to be very honest with yourself self deception is one of the most pernicious undercurrents in spiritual life and maybe in all of life and if we're in the true see if we're true seekers if we want to try to be true seekers i'm not talking about buddhism now life true seekers mensch kite you know menchiness then honesty and it doesn't just mean not lying not also not deceiving yourself also trying to see through your own illusions and delusion and many things come up in this kind of dharma talk we have to you know i mean if we're true seekers we feel incumbent upon ourselves to really apply those and engage with those candidly nakedly honestly and try to get feedback from others and you know not just avoid or t- turn away from criticism and things and then you know you know who you are and your exterior and your interior might be the same some people's exterior is very big and their interior is small and they have a huge split and it's very hard to deal with and they have very bad difficult unhappy habits in their life you know what i'm talking about like celebrity makes you this big but inside being a fearful little uh, whatever that never got very mature in different ways in life so um probably whatever they said in my introduction or on those book covers are true factually because i look at them and vet them and other people did I mean I don't know what it means but like the Dalai Lama Nick calls me the American Lama that sounds good but you know as Meng of Google said who wrote search inside yourself Cheng Di Meng he said when he introduced me at Google to give a talk a dharma talk he said and he's the the Dalai Lama calls him the American Lama but I don't know what that means I is like the American idol <laughs> which was very punny for a Chinese American speaker So I hope we help communicate. Thank you. You know, and I'm just a guy and I really said that we're all just bozos. A bodhisattva is on the bus. <laughs> and there's many other ways of saying it. As Ramdas used to say, if you're in India a long time and you think you're high and holier than now, go home and spend a week sitting at your parents' dinner table where you grew up <laughs> and see how how you feel. See what happened, how you feel, you know, see like take the test. administer the self evaluation test <laughs> no aspersions on your parents you see what i'm saying well like some people often ask me how we could know if like uh, the teachers in light and i always say ask their mate that they live with 
whether they're enlightened is not the point, but honest, looking in the mirror of different kinds of relations, outer and inner, seeking the truth about ourselves, knowing ourselves, being ourselves. You know, it all sounds like cliches when you rattle it out, but this is real stuff. And being a healer is a great, wonderful thing and vocation, so more power to you. And a leader is even better for these days. We really need elders, spiritual eldership in this culture. Mentoring and everything we can do. Even just good parenting or grandparenting is a great contribution today in our very fragmented and alienated times. Yes, over here. Anybody I haven't heard from, I feel like I've talked to you or met you. Anybody I haven't heard from that's slower on the draw, get your hand up, please. We'll get to you later, Charlie. Yes, you Hello. did. Hello. You did meet me. Um, <clears throat> you're talking a lot about um, mentoring and parenting and grandparenting. How can we, when we're seeking ourselves, how can we, other than just trying to be a good example, pass some of these things on to our children? I specifically have a 12-and-a-half-year-old daughter um, who I'm constantly trying to keep present and, uh, you know, be here right now where you are kind of thing. Suggestions? Yeah. Yes, that's a challenge, of course. So you have to accept that the, there's no easy answers to this. So I'll give you the steepest answer, okay? She is already here now, so maybe you can relax a little. Where else could she be ever? Well, she is here right now, of course, but she's... They... But not enough. I mean, is she ADHD or, um, you know, uh, bicoastal or bipolar? Or, or she's just a kid that's like everywhere and try, you're trying to get her channeled in the, you know, get, you know, socialized and grow up directly. Right. Yeah. Right. Maybe you can relax a little bit about it and be here now with her, you know, like childlike um, dance. Okay. Dance. That's why there are a thousand armed deities, not just, you know, like one peaceful Buddha sitting there like this, like a stone Buddha. Living Buddhas. Dance. And uh, she's 12 and a half, so um, it's going to get easier now. (laughs) So don't worry. There's nothing to decide right now. Yeah, it's a big question. Right. How about, you know, on another tack, has anybody ever heard of med- mindfulness games or meditation games? Well, there should be. Susan Kaiser Greenland, who wrote the book on mindful children or mindful parenting, whatever the title is, talks about um, meditation games like keeping a, a little group uh, bouncing a beach ball up in the air together, not letting it touch the ground so everybody's involved and keep it up and keep your attention on it. And I've talked for years about like walking on a straight line, on a yellow line, on the edge of a carpet, on the edge of the water with the kids and heel to toe, heel to toe, and then even backwards, heel to toe, slowly, quicker. It's a classic walking meditation. We can make it a meditation game. You can't force children to sit still and be quiet. Obviously, that's not their time. But these kind of meditation games can increase the attention span, develop focus and concentration, be fun, 
be a group thing, not alone, silence, solitude. No. We need to be creative about this. And I'm not a parent. You must know what to do with her. You know, or non-competitive sports is a great way to have hyper-vigilant natural meditation. Tai Chi, Qigong, Karate, exercise, I don't know, all kinds of things. Swimming their prayers, as some people call it, dancing their prayers, like Gabriel Roth teaches. Yes, in the back row there. Thank you, it's a good question. We're all worried about that. I know there's five or ten million prescriptions for Ritalin today in America, and I don't know if it's overprescribed, but attention-enhancing exercises are definitely underprescribed. Yes, in the back row. What can we do to try to increase mindfulness um, in our day-to-day lives, aside from remembering of mindfulness, um, and aside from perhaps daily practice of uh, silent meditation, what, what would you recommend? To well, those are two good things. One, a daily-ish practice of, of your practice of whatever it is, cultivating mindfulness. You mentioned silent meditation. That will do. Let's say in the morning, but any time. And second, what you said, remembering to remember. Not just think about mindfulness, but in the moment, remembering to remember what you're doing while you're doing it. Like if somebody cuts you off in traffic, you can take a breath and have a moment of mindfulness and remember what's important like that before you just react with the foot, the car, the horn, flip the bird or whatever you do. Those are two things already. Another thing that I really like and I advocate <clears throat> is um, you know, moments of mindfulness. I'm a kind of comparing kind of guy. So I'm jealous of the Muslims who five times a day, I know we here, we probably hate Muslims, but generally, <laughs> the, just joking, the Muslim, to make a point, the Muslims have something good that we don't think about much, although probably everybody knows. Five times a day, they even the, the trickiest rug merchants in some Middle Eastern bazaar, they stop the. They close the shop. They get out their well-worn prayer mat. They put it down facing Mecca, and they bow down. They have a five-minute moment of mindfulness. I know they call it prayer. They call it praying, praying to Allah. Five times a day. Why don't we stop five? Look around the room. Why don't we stop five times a day and have five minutes of? You fill in the blank. Mindfulness, chanting, praying, read something sacred or holy or peaceful. Generate some loving kindness. Five times a day. That would be fantastic. That would inform our whole day. So I think the real point of this tirade, which I'm tirading on purpose about, is how about we just have like many moments of mindfulness throughout the day. Remember to do this. Take a breath, take a break. Two seconds, four seconds, eight seconds. It would create a lot more space in our day, and we'd feel like we have more time, not less time. These moments of mindfulness, I'm just calling them moments of mindfulness. You know, you could call them moments of prayer, whatever you want to call them, will perforate the solidity of a claustrophobic day and let the fresh air of just awareness and nowness and joyful spirit, non-mental wind fragrance blow through. And if we do enough of those the whole solid thing becomes like a screen that we can see through at the same time that it keeps the bugs out. 
you know, there's a reason for this screen and this separateness. So don't, don't jump out of the frying pan of duality into the burning bush of oneness, or you'll end up in a mental hospital. <laughs> it's important to have an individuated, grown-up adult ego. But maybe the ego is a good servant, not a good master, with too much under its thrall. Like it's good to have a good mind as well as a good heart, you know? And if you're like learned and educated and intelligent, think for yourself and wholesome. But the mind, the intellect is, is a good servant. It's a, pure, it's a poor master with too much under its thrall. I know my mind is not the best neighborhood for me to live in. So these moments of mindfulness, to use our term that we're using today, can be very, very helpful throughout the day in integrating the sacred or the spirit or wisdom awareness cultivation into our daily life. Nobody can keep us from doing it. We can do it for a minute. We can do it while we're on the commuter, travel, while we're waiting for the elevator, while we're babysitting or watching the kids play sports. We can do it in our coffee breaks at our busy workplace. How long does it take to awaken? One breath, one moment, one minute, three minutes? Or to pray or to connect, however you look at it. Or to love, to open our heart, to make the journey from head to heart. It's a huge journey, but it's not that far, really. Take